On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news and information from the ASC industry, including updates on the flu and COVID-19, and a discussion of supply chain cost increases. In our focus segment, we interview Bill Prentice from the ASC Association. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 168 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for October 10th, 2022. Recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. He is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So uh, we have been busy going to conferences. We've, uh, mm-hmm. Sue, you and I were in Ohio, then we went on to New York. Yep. Uh, previous to that, I was in California. We have special episodes for each of those conferences. Then we have one of our employees going down to the New Jersey conference mm-hmm. uh, next week. And then uh, I'll be heading out to Massachusetts and then Washington State. So yes. uh, we're going to be very busy. And we have to see if Massachusetts and uh, Washington uh, will give us the material to be able to do podcasts from there. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. I've never been, I've been to Massachusetts. I've never been to Washington State. Mm-hmm. So we'll We'll see how that uh, conference goes. I know it's a pretty big event, so uh, I'm excited. And then our boot camps. This is the first time we've ever announced both uh, the administrators and director of nursing boot camps simultaneously. The conferences mm-hmm. are not simultaneous, but no. the uh, the director of nursing boot camp will be in October, and the uh, admin- next administrators boot camp will be in uh, January. And Sue, that January boot camp will be celebrating our third anniversary of doing mm-hmm. that. So I can't believe that uh, we've been. It's hard to believe that we're two and a half years past the I know, pandemic now, I know. so I think yep. we're still getting adjusted to that. But but the boot camps have been very popular, mm-hmm. and uh, we uh, we are very happy to uh, to see them continue. And I think I think both of us kind of thought that that might be something that wouldn't you know keep mm-hmm. going on after uh, people got back to real work. But I think it's actually given it more of a of a push because mm-hmm. people just can't get away in today's environment. Yeah, and I think there's still so much turnover that there's always new people that need to learn just the basics of the job and and dig in a little bit more. 
And uh, we're still working on our business administrators mm-hmm. boot camp or business uh, office managers boot camp. I don't know what we're going to call it yet. Yep. Uh, we're working with uh, Christina Benton on that, and we just haven't been able to nail down a time yet. But that will probably be our target right now is in the fall of 2023. Mm-hmm. So that is a bit away off. And, and Sue, we celebrate this week, Sterile Processing Week. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of feel bad for making a, a big deal out of it, not because it's important, but we never really celebrate any of these important weeks. And I mm-hmm. think uh, I just happened to see this one, or actually yep. it was brought up to me by our uh, by uh, Lori Rodericks, who is our uh, infection control yeah. expert. Not so. because it's not important. That's right. It meant. is so important. Yes. And and if anything, Absolutely. Uh, what a group of people that mm-hmm. probably don't mm-hmm. get a lot of attention. But yeah. we promise we'll so... try to celebrate everybody. But uh, yeah. but th- this is an important week for you to uh, uh, go and, and I don't know if we, this is appropriate, but go and hug a sterile processing person. But <laughs> Ask permission first. First, right. Just don't go jump. But no, <laughs> but, I mean, I think for people that are so out of the public eye yeah. that, that aren't really right in your face all the time, they have such an impact, though, on patient outcomes, you know, that yeah. it really, they, they deserve a lot of appreciation. Yeah, and it, it is a tough work, and it's, uh, you know, we... Mm-hmm. Um, I know you and your training as a nurse, you know, didn't get really much uh, mm-hmm. sterile processing, yeah, sterile technique, but you didn't mm-hmm. get any no. any education on sterile processing. And certainly myself, uh, I had a 40-hour course on it for my training accreditation uh, surveying. But I got to tell you, at the time that I took it, I'm not sure I understood half of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Probably should take it again because I think I've learned so much from it. But then again, you know, working with Lori has been fantastic. She is, uh, she's really uh, explained a lot of it. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, if you want more information about sterile processing, you can certainly look into our uh, infection Control 101 and, and 201 courses, which are available on the ASC podcast website. Sue, another thing that we really enjoy every week is our drop-in sessions for mm-hmm. our patrons. Again, I want to thank all of our patron members here. We have over 100, and I, I can't remember the number now, it's over 150 of them. And, you know, anybody that attends one of our boot camps automatically becomes a patron member also, as well as those that uh, that sign up individually on the uh, ASC podcast website. So uh, definitely one of the biggest uh, advantages of that program is that weekly drop-in session where you get to ask all kinds of questions. And last week, Sue, we had four surveyors on again, three uh, uh, health surveyors and one life safety surveyor. Mm-hmm. So a lot of questions going after that poor life safety guy, <laughs> uh, but he he enjoys it. So, mm-hmm. um, Okay, well, let's talk about the latest news. We haven't done an episode with news in a bit, but uh, it really hasn't been terribly busy. I think we should knock on wood about that. But Mm -hmm. let me start off with uh, ASCA really uh, recently did a survey that uh, uh, looked into uh, increases in drug and supply costs. And I'm going to give a link to this. There is no surprise about this at all. What they found is 100% of the respondents share shared that the prices of medical items and equipment have gone up in the past year. And 99% of them stated that prices of medical supplies and equipment had increased over the past year. Just one multi-specialty facility in Pennsylvania reported a decrease in prices. When asked about the magnitude of the price increases, 61% of the facilities estimated that the increases were between 10 and 24%. Wow. Uh, which is pretty incredible, especially when you consider uh, that the uh, proposed increase in the Medicare rates for 2023, based upon that the CMS um, initial proposal in, in July, uh, is 2.7%, which uh, is certainly not going to make up for these increases. Uh, so we're very concerned, obviously, about what's going to go on. Also, that, uh, that same study indicated that the biggest uh, increase was in lidocaine mm-hmm. on the drug side, which if you think about it, that's a 
a drug that's used in, you know, I would say a vast majority of surgical procedures in some form. So let's keep an eye on, on that and see if, uh, if the uh, supply chain continues to be a bit of a problem. And, you know, you think about that's even if you can get these things. So it's right. not just the price, it's it's the actual supply. So it's kind and, of it's worrisome. Yeah, and definitely you probably should be stocking up on it. I hate to overstock this I know. stuff. Don't hoard be, it. Don't but. hoard it, please. But you should be <laughs> yeah, stocking up be on it because it's probably not going to get better anytime soon. Yeah. So I just looked into some COVID data on the, on the CDC site. Right now it's pretty good news, although I think that probably the cases will start going up again. But um, we'll put the uh, link in for the CDC site where you can look this up. You can look up U.S. totals and also, you know, specifically by state. So the U.S. totals in all areas um, were declining when you go from the last seven days to the previous week. So there's 488 1,798 cases, which is down by 21% from the week before. Um, the viral or PCR lab test positivity is 13.5%, which is down just 0.2% from the week before. Um, confirmed COVID-19 admissions are 30,772, which is down 15.8% from the week before. And deaths were 2,397, which is down 19% from the week before. That's still, if you if you take that number, 2,397 for a week, that's mm-hmm. still significantly, uh, that's still a significant uh, rate right now. So yeah. Yeah. it's great that it's down that much, but boy, mm-hmm. it's amazing that the, that the numbers are still that high. Yeah, and we are, of course, going more into the winter right. time. Um, and there was, a again, we'll put this um, link on there, to hospital utilization, HHS Protect um, Public Data Hub is is where you'd find this, but we'll put the link on there. And you can search any state to see the hospital bed availability, which is both the inpatient and the ICU beds. And um, just for example, in New York State, they said 73.2% of the ICU beds are currently in use. So at least it's a whole lot better than it used to be where everything, which is why I looked up New York State, because I know, especially in the city, that we were over capacity for quite some time. But only 5.6% of those are being used for COVID patients. Yeah, and when I looked at a few other states, it was right around that number in most of the states. So it's it's not as though um, COVID is filling up the ICU yeah, beds ICU anymore is. right now. It is sad that we still have such a high occupancy mm-hmm. right now, uh, though that is uh, it's certainly better than 100%. So. Yeah, and I don't know if there are still issues with gathering data when you look at, you know, with COVID versus from COVID right, and, and right. that kind of thing. But, you know, the, the numbers themselves do look better. Well, and I guess we better go back and talk about the flu, too, right? Of course. Yep. And, of course, the flu season, at least in New York, and I, I think probably, I don't think it's been declared anywhere that I'm aware of, but may have been. Um, so on the CDC surveillance report, they, first off, strongly recommend you get the vaccine before the end of October. You really probably should have gotten it by now, but, you know, and, and if you don't, I mean, any time that you get it is better than not getting it at all, but certainly if you want to really be protected, you'd want to get it very soon. Um, and both Sue and I got it together. We did. It was not painful. I didn't run away nope. from the, um, the, <laughs> the pharmacist. Nope. <laughs> um, the peak of flu activity is between December and February, yeah. with February has historically been the worst month, I think 17 out of the past 35 years. It's uh, February has been the worst. Um, on the U.S. map that tracked the rate of influenza activity, only which is weird, but only Texas, D.C., the Mariana I- Islands, and Georgia were in the high category. 
So it's kind of hard to explain. Yeah. I don't know if it's the way they're gathering data. I don't know why those random places would, yeah, that is you know, that aren't right together. But everybody else was either lower or moderate. So that's good. But but you kind of have to keep in mind that we've become a lot more relaxed about the flu because we were focusing on COVID. And the last couple of seasons were very, very mild, barely registered at all because we were all, you know, doing the COVID precautions, masks, isolation, hand sanitizer. And so people just weren't getting the flu. So, um there's a lot of concern that now our immunity is going to be so far down. You know, little kids, like two-year-olds yeah. probably have never been exposed in any way. So, um, you know, there is some concern about that. Now, the Southern Hemisphere is where you probably all know where the flu season starts. And they say it's being hit really hard this year. And only 66% of adults over 65 in the U.S. actually have received the flu vaccine last year. So we're hoping that people are and I kind of become aware that it's probably going to rebound quite significantly this year. And don't forget, it's, you know, we've been so focused on COVID, but flu can do a lot of damage itself. So um, just encourage everybody to be more aware of that. And Sue, uh, when you saw this next article, you uh, uh, were quite concerned about this uh, impact of short side fascinating <laughs> little notes. So. I know. <laughs> and I guess anybody who has an eye center, you know, yeah. maybe it's uh, some hints you can give to your to your patients, but I was surprised to see this. It was um, an article in the BBC Family Tree. It's an online, I don't know, journal or something that they put on there from October 4th of this year. And they said 40% of adults in the U.S. are, are short-sighted as compared to 25% in 1971. And um, the rates among teens and young adults in places like South Korea, Taiwan, and mainland China are between 84 and 97%. That is crazy to me. Yeah. Um, and at this rate, they said half of the world's population, they would expect to be short-sighted by 2050. Um, although, obviously, you know, people think, well, you just wear glasses. But, and probably anybody that works in my center or you, John, mm -hmm. probably knew this better than I did. But it can eventually lead to uh, more serious visual impairment, cataracts, retinal detachment, glaucoma, you know, so even blindness. While genetics obviously play a role in this, the research is pointing to spending so much time indoors and reading and working at close range, so computers, mm -hmm. even reading, which, of course, we want to encourage education and kids to read, but doing it almost like if they could sit outside because it's really, they're finding it's at low light, not being exposed to the natural light, um, not looking farther like when you're out taking a walk or whatever. And in one area in China, they found that the rate of um, short-sightedness in six-year-old children increased the first during the first couple of years of the pandemic from 57 to 21.5% in just those two years of the pandemic. So who knows what it's, has happened other places just mm -hmm. because you're, you know, everybody's kind of been locked down. And an interesting part of this is that the middle to lower income populations tend to actually have lower rates. And the higher socioeconomic status is correlated with short-sightedness. And often those um, children, you know, you figure they're, they're spending more time in school, they're getting lessons, maybe piano lessons, doing other indoor activities. But it's you know, it's going to end up being a problem because yeah. especially if you get those more serious eye issues, you know, you're, you're going to be struggling as you get older. So it was just well, something you, that I, I wasn't at all aware of. I found it interesting. Well, if you think about how much time we spend in front of a computer, I, I, mm -hmm. I mean, this is making me you know, <laughs> think about 
today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're recording this at 3.50 in the afternoon, and mm-hmm. I've been on the computer and since 5 o'clock this morning. The only time I leave, of course, is yeah. to, to cook food, which is my other you know, <laughs> important thing in my life. And even <laughs> when you're thinking, because you're not, even if you're not looking at a screen or watching, it's not that the kids are necessarily sitting in front of TV all day, mm-hmm. but if you're in the house... You're only looking as far as that wall across the room from you. And also, they really stressed having to do with the natural light. So some schools and and some other countries are trying to just have more windows, maybe have like sunroofs. Mm -hmm. But then there's that whole comfort level of trying to read in really bright sunlight. So they're looking into trying to figure out what to do, but... Maybe we need to move our studio up into our sunroom, which is the one room in the house that's used the least, right? I don't know, but then we'd be staring at the computers in front of us reading our screen. That's true. That's true. It might might help a little, though. (laughs) So, Sue, let's talk a little bit about some of our recent experiences. Um, One thing, this is kind of amazing to me, that it's happened three times in the last seven days. All of a sudden, it's crazy. So, uh, we've had uh, suction machine backup problems. Uh, so three of our centers in the last seven days, uh, one pretty serious where they, uh, the backup pump uh, was not working. They, they had to kind of shut down surgery. Well, not kind of. They had to start, shut down surgery because the backup pump was not working. It was not the pump itself that was a problem, but it was the, um, the board that controls that pump. Mm-hmm. So uh, that automatic switch on when the correct. other one fails. Correct. So uh, that uh, that was an ongoing problem. And then, you know, I went off, did a mock survey at one of our centers in uh, Manhattan, and I'm looking at there, and, uh, you know, sometime during the day, I mean, they double-check these things all, all day long, mm-hmm. but when I went in, uh, the pump had shown a failure. So uh, I notified them and said, you have to do something about that pretty quickly. Um, so one thing to, to do in, on a daily inspection and document this is your review or your checking of the uh, the status of your two suction pumps. So for those that don't know, the suction uh, pump machines always have two, sometimes three uh, pumps. I guess it's possible to have even more than that, but the average surgery center has two or three. And then what happens is the suction pump tends to work off, uh, the suction for the facility tends to work off of, or works off of one of these pumps and then switches periodically to the other pump. And there's always that backup capability. So if one pump goes down in the middle of its operation, it should automatically switch over to the other pump. But you should always, just like with electricity, you should always have backup uh, resource for suction, given how important that suction is in, in a surgical uh, center. So double check that, make sure somebody is checking that every day uh, and follow up immediately. And if, you, if your backup is not working, you really are in a situation where you shouldn't be doing operations. Second thing that's been coming up is we've had a number of, of clients that have come to us about uh, wanting to do research. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, the uh, uh, patients were coming in that were part of a research project or they were themselves going to be running a research program. Uh, so I have quite a bit of experience with this, and I, I just led them through it. But basically, just a, kind of a quick overview, uh, the governing body obviously has to review the contract or the agreement with the research organization. The research has to be approved by an institutional review board. Uh, that's an IRB. Uh, generally, that's an external board. Uh, you're, I don't, can't imagine most surgery centers are, are large enough to have their own. Uh, and the biggest part of the Institutional Review Board is making sure that uh, the patient has a proper informed consent. So all of those things have to come together. Uh, this is one of those things that surveyors look at when they do a survey. So there's a whole chapter in HCCC, for example, uh, for uh, research. And what we're expecting to see is the governing body overseeing that program, reviewing the contract, reviewing the IRB um, report, and and then making sure that there's some... Uh, uh, that there is a, a copy of a, a signed informed research consent uh, in each of the patient's charts. 
And lastly, for recent experiences, uh, doors, Sue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been – we went into one facility that uh, in, in the last two months since I visited – uh, the doors were in terrible repair. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. I don't know what was going on here, but the doors, uh, you know, those with automatic door closers, mm-hmm. they won't close all the way and latch. Uh, there were holes in the door. Some of the doors had, uh, you know, tape over them, um, you know, holding the, the door open. Um, you, and so remember, uh, so one thing that is required under uh, for ASCs is they have to do annual door inspections for any of those doors that go through smoke or fire barriers. Uh, by the way, we do, uh, and it requires training. Now, you can hire an outside company to do it, but it isn't actually required for you to hire uh, an outside organization. With proper training, you can uh, have somebody in your own organization do it. And as luck would have it, mm-hmm. the ASC podcast with John Gailey has a training program for that that's available for all of our patron program members. It's also available for purchase from our website at ASCpodcast.com. But but most people tend to uh, to do it through the patron program. So it's, just, it's a free educational program and you get a mm-hmm. certificate at the end of it. Um, but if you'd have to sign up as a patron member. Um, and But here's my point about that annual door inspection. It's not just because of inspections. Those doors are very critical elements of your mm-hmm. uh, life safety in your organization. So make sure that they're kept in good repair. You can't have any holes or damage to the doors. You should replace or repair them. Most of the time, they actually have to be replaced. And then uh, also, in addition to any of those, just make sure the hardware is all working, you know, the locks, the latches, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. And while we're at the subject, let's remember and remind everybody to check your smoke and wall penetrations. It's the easiest thing for a surveyor to cite, a life safety surveyor mm-hmm. to cite, and it's also the easiest thing to fix. But it's one of the things that you will find many, if not almost all, uh, life safety surveyors citing during a, an average mm-hmm. survey. So. Especially if you've had... Some work done recently, right? Or like IT things, putting wires yeah. through. Those IT people, they seem to always love putting uh, mm-hmm. holes through your walls. And uh, they, they're kind of yeah. sneaky about that, too. They uh, they, uh, there's, there's they probably have no idea that it even that matters don't. to you. They, they just <laughs> pop those wires through, and the next thing you know, you're getting sighted because you got holes in your walls. That's right. And that I do find, as a matter of fact, as you, mm-hmm. as you said, Sue, that's actually, I'd say 90% of the penetrations we find are because mm-hmm. of IT. Because, I mean, obviously, there's so much IT uh, work being done mm-hmm. in, in the average surgery center today. Okay, so that gets you up to date on uh, recent news and recent experiences. Let's take a short break, and then we're going to come back for an interview that I did during the California State Association meeting in September with uh, Bill Prentice. Now, Bill is on the podcast periodically. He is the executive with the ASC Association, and uh, this time we talked about recent events going on with the ASC Association as well as a discussion of the the proposed 2023 CMS regulations and payment rule. So let's take a short break and we'll be right back. It's been a long day and the surveyor has just left and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all of the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambitory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. 
We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. So I'm here at the uh, California Association meeting in September of 2022, and I'm here with Bill Prentice. He's the Chief Executive Officer at ASCA. And uh, Bill joins us a couple times a year. Thank you, Bill, for uh, for coming on the, the podcast here, talk a little bit about what's going on. Last time you and I spoke, it was before uh, the new payment rule for 2023, the proposed payment rule came out. So um, can we start by talking a little bit about, you know, what were some of the major events or things that came about in the uh, in the proposed rule? Well, thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to spend a few minutes with you and uh, and and talk about what's going on in the ASC space. When it comes to uh, our proposed uh, CMS payment rule, uh, Medicare payment rule this year, uh, you know the usual buckets. You know, what are we going to be reimbursed? You know, how are we going to be updated for inflation? You know, what procedures are going to be added to our list? Uh, and you know, are there going to be any significant changes to our quality reporting program? Uh, when, like, taking first things first, when it comes to, to payment, uh, we're a bit disappointed in the inflationary update that's yeah. been proposed. Only 2.7 percent, you know, for both us and hospital outpatient departments. Especially in light of all of the dramatic increases that we're experiencing, especially in salary costs or, or well, it, wage exa- costs. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we all can see the impact of overall inflation in our personal lives, yeah. and and since most, you know. Generally, Medicare, uh, excuse me, medical inflation is uh, higher than mm-hmm. overall inflation. A two point seven percent increase uh, seems, you know, way too uh, too low. Uh, so we're obviously going to be advocating for for a, a fresh look at that data and hoping right. that we get a higher inflationary update by the time the rule is finalized in November. And uh, you and I were talking before we started the recording here. Uh, you know, I've been around a long time, actually, in the industry longer than you. And I remember in 2008 when... Stop bragging. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't think it's bragging. <laughs> in 2008, when we moved to the new reimbursement system, there was a lot of talk about the importance of us being tied to the hospital system. It seemed counterintuitive at the time, but um, but I think we're running into that same situation right now with this uh, the, the payment rule update. Yeah, I, for listeners uh, who have not paid close attention to this, uh, a reminder that f- this is the fifth year of a pilot yeah. program where CMS has been updating ASCs for inflation using the same inflation factor as the hospital outpatient departments, the hospital market basket. Right. Before that, we were being updated using a, a broad inflationary um, factor called the Consumer Price Index for Urban Consumers. 
And most years, that mm-hmm. CPIU would spit out an inflation number that, as I mentioned, would lower than right. the hospital market basket, again, because medical inflation generally runs higher. This is one of those odd years, though, yeah. where probably if we were on the CPIU, we'd get a higher inflationary update right. um, than, than what has been pro- proposed using the market basket. I'd argue, though, that because in most years that is yeah. not the case – and because I think being aligned with the hospitals in terms of having an interest in having the, the best possible inflationary update, having their lobbying power, their market power, you know, working on our behalf in this, right. you know, to this extent to try and get the, a good inflationary update, um, we're better off staying on the, on the market basket. Right. As I mentioned, this is the fifth year of that pilot. So there is, you know, a chance that next year, we could be revert back to the CPIU or something even worse, you know, a change CPIU, which is a an even a, a number that you know spits out even a, a lower inflationary yeah. number. Um, we're arguing, of course, that because of the pandemic, the last right. two years, volume numbers are suspect. Right. And as a result, they really need more data about this pilot. So they should extend it for at least a couple more years right. and hopefully extend it permanently. Something we're also trying to get addressed legislatively. And I think another piece of good news right now is that we know the hospitals are not any happier about this low increase as, as like us. Uh, no, they, they they'll make a big fight for it. They have been very uh, outspoken in terms of their concerns about this uh this this number and so to the extent uh, our combined voices through you know our comments to the proposed rule and things that you know we're saying publicly uh, lead CMS to you know, make a, a change and, and increase that number uh, I think we'll all benefit and our patients will benefit as well right one of the challenges that I think we have right now one of the things that we've noted you know ambulatory surgery centers we know are, are a lower cost alternative you know our reimbursement rate is considerably lower than the hospitals built right into the CMS system. So we've always been making this argument that it's a cheaper place to go, but there has been a bit of a problem with that with regard to the copay cap. Now, we've talked about this before, but I think it bears uh, repeating the importance of moving this. So why don't you talk a little bit about what that is and what we're doing to try to fight it? Yeah, the, the copay cap is something that is a complete head scratcher to anybody who, who spends a couple of minutes thinking about it, which is the copay cap is uh, a, a law that basically limits what a Medicare beneficiary will pay uh, as a copay when they receive care in the hospital. Right. And so for uh, this year, that's $1,556 is the maximum amount a beneficiary would pay. I think I have that number right. Uh, meaning that it doesn't matter if that uh, procedure you're getting in the hospital costs thirty dollars or $40,000, you're not going to pay more than $1,500 some odd dollars right. as a copay. There is no copay for care being pre- provided to a Medicare beneficiary in the ambulatory there's surgery no center. no copay cap. No copay cap. Right. So what that means is, is that there's this perverse disincentive now yeah. for a Medicare beneficiary where it will cost her more out of her pocket to get a lower cost procedure in a surgery center right. than a higher cost procedure in the hospital. Yeah. So we as taxpayers are being disadvantaged by this perverse disincentive. Um, So we're looking uh, legislatively in our ASC legislation to create a copay cap for our setting as well. And, and, And this matters because, you know, when this or the original copay cap was established for the hospitals, that was before ASCs were really performing yeah. high cost pr- uh, procedures like like total joints and and, and spine procedures uh, with high device costs. Um, now that we're doing more of those higher cost procedures, 
um, this copay cap has really self-identified itself as a real barrier to care mm-hmm. uh, for Medicare beneficiaries that we need to address, particularly those Medicare beneficiaries that don't have like an additional like Medigap coverage. Right. So this is the lower income Medicare beneficiary, uh, more likely to be a, a beneficiary of color that is going to be disadvantaged by this uh, by this barrier and something we need to get Congress to address. And we need to make it clear, we're, we're in favor of the cap. We just want to make sure it's applying uh, equally it, 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 to the hospitals. Exactly. That, I mean, look, we know that the, the cost of medical care, uh, particularly for Medicare beneficiaries, is a real stress on them. And so we yeah. need this copay cap to apply both in the hospital and the surgery center. Another thing that was interesting in this most recent one, when I when I read the the, the proposal, the 2023 uh, CMS proposal, uh, that only one procedure was added this year. Probably the I, I I'd have to go back and look at my records, but I think it's the lowest number of procedures added in um, in certainly recent history. Uh, I think that's that's the case, and and we actually had offered up 47 different yeah. pro- specific procedures that we believe could be safely performed on appropriate Medicare beneficiaries in the ASC setting. So to have only one of those procedures uh, being added is 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 really uh, just terrible, especially uh, post pandemic when we know that there's a movement already, uh, and especially in other insurance companies from the hospital into the surgery center. Exactly, and when you see what is moving on the commercial side, particularly in patients near Medicare age, yeah. and the things that we're able to do, and so total shoulders, total shoulders, total ankles. There's a, a host of different procedures that we could be performing that we really need to get added to our list. Right. One of the things that we've seen in this this proposed rule as well as last year's was a, a really odd um, uh, term being raised by CMS, which is the idea that a procedure has to be safe for a typical Medicare beneficiary yeah. in order to be safely put onto our list. Since there's no definition, we don't understand what they mean by a typical Medicare right. beneficiary. That's you know, We're basically fighting a ghost there, yeah. as well as the fact that that just goes, you know, completely ignores the whole underpinnings of the ASC model, which is that we use patient selection criteria to make sure that every patient that comes into a surgery center is safe, can be safely seen there, that they don't have comorbidities or other health conditions um, that would would create a higher risk to to receive care in an ASC. And to take the pressure off the hospital so they can focus on the more intensive patients. Well, well, exactly. So so this this straw man of this typical Medicare beneficiary is something that we need to get them to to do away with because it it really doesn't make sense and I think is really harmful uh, to the growth of the Medicare program and to the ability to use the ASC to save um, billions of dollars a year. Right. Just just to remind people, the, the fact that we exist as a site of service in the Medicare program saves that program yeah. over $4 billion a year. $4 billion that can be used to provide care in other ways and in other settings. So uh, why CMS is not more incentivized yeah. to try and drive volume to our setting and increase that number to, again, to create greater savings in the overall program that can be used to provide other benefits and other care in other ways uh, mystifies me. And lastly, I, I think something that both you and I are very passionate about is uh, the leadership challenges that we're dealing with, right? I, we have a staffing challenge, too, but uh, that, that's a discussion for another day. But um, what we have found during the pandemic is uh, a lot of retirements of senior uh, nursing and administrator staff, even business office uh, people, and a lot of new people coming into the industry. I've run into a lot of them. I did a boot camp here for uh, for the California Association on Finances, which was a lot of fun, but a lot of new people. Some of them coming from outside of the healthcare industry, some of them coming from the healthcare industry 
um, or, or from education where they had a lot of education, say, uh, say on the physician side or in the hospital side, because there really is no education programs in colleges and universities for our type of a setting. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on there and the need for mentoring of our, uh, of our leadership and, you know, uh, development of uh, our future leaders here. Yeah, I, I think the the overall staffing shortage issue that we're seeing and this leadership challenge, are, I think, are interrelated. Yeah, I, I think that you know they, they are separate to in some to some degree, but I think they are related. I think that that this is a problem that has been, you know, long in coming, and I yeah. think the pandemic obviously really. Um, push things a, a, a lot faster because of the, the resignations we've seen, the decisions by people to just throw up their hands and yeah. retire. And, and I think that has led to both a, you know, an overall staff shortage, but I think we are also seeing a leadership shortage yeah. in terms of, you know, where, where are the next generation of administrators and, and CEOs of surgery centers going to come from? And are they going to have the breadth of knowledge and training and experience right. uh, they need in order to succeed and to make sure that our ASCs continue to provide the, 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 the great efficiencies, um, the great patient safety and the great quality that we have, um, come to expect. So I, you know, your boot camps, I think our administrator development program, right. um, is a way to, to try and address that so that we can find either new administrators or, uh, people who want to become administrators and give them the training and tools um, so that they can, you know, lead a surgery center um, and and help a surgery center succeed, you know, today and into the future. Uh, one of the things that our program focuses on is is basically uh, connecting a new administrator or a soon to be administrator, a mentee, with a mentor, someone right. with you know, with experience in the ASC setting, um, a proven record of success that they can turn to. You know, outside of the classroom, outside right. of the training, the sessions to ask questions of and, and to get, you know, to, in a non-threatening way, in a very non-threatening yeah, yeah. way um, to be able to, you know, ask the ask the, the, the stupid question. Right. Yeah. Of course, there are no stupid questions. Right. But, you know, sometimes people feel like I, I think I'm, I, I probably pe- people expect that I know this. You know, and I'll just muddle my way through. Yeah. Where now they have a trusted, you know, person they can turn to, ask that question, get the answer, and, and then obviously, you know, apply that, you know, in their surgery center. So I think it's something that you know we have to spend a lot of a time and attention on. Right. Um, it's something that's uh, I, I think the initial reviews from our program, and I'm sure you're seeing the same with yours, yeah. is really positive and it's yeah. something that I think we're going to grow over time because I think this is a problem that's not going to go away. Right. And and I what I love about your program too is that that one-on-one mentoring um also assists not only to have somebody ask the questions for it, but also to introduce people to other in, individuals in the industry. And so and so I remember the first time I came 32 years ago to the yeah. first ASCA conference I didn't know anybody right. but you know I have I have no problem going up and introducing myself to any you know people not everybody is that way. And I think this provides a great opportunity during right. conferences just it, meet it, them. exactly that because part of our program does involve them coming to our in-person meetings yep. and with that mentor and then meeting people and obviously getting the experience of that being live in in a you know right. in, in an ASC environment. We also, though, recognize for some people that's just not going to work. So yeah. actually, this year we're developing a virtual version of that program. You're still going to have one-on-ones with a mentor and be able right. to, you know, zoom with them or potentially meet them in person if they're you're in your area, but yeah. allow you to get that education and training in a virtual format rather than in person. 
if that just doesn't work for you. So right. now there's two different ways of doing it, but it also creates two different opportunities during the year yeah. to start this program rather than have to wait a whole calendar year to get you know, get started. Um, yeah. So this is something I think is only going to grow. I, yeah. I very much appreciate you know the, the ask of volunteers that are serving as mentors, our education committee, which you've been on, right. uh, to, to help develop this program. And I, I think it's one of the ways we can ensure that the ASC model not just survives, you know, where we yeah. are in healthcare, but thrives. Absolutely. And I think for all of our listeners out there, um, they need to remember that you're never alone in this industry. I no. mean, there are no secrets. Uh, um, yeah. You know, we, we share our policies, we share our resources, and we share, you know, our knowledge, you know, through these yeah. one-on-one relationships. I, I think unlike almost any other healthcare setting, the ASC is a, is a welcoming environment. Yeah, uh, when sure. you come to any of these meetings, people are so willing to try and help out, answer questions, you know, help yeah. each other out. We saw that our last ASCA in-person conference, the the, the number of people that ask questions or or, mm-hmm. or added to, to the conversation during sessions was uh, was really great to see. And you know the, the thing I'll, I I always just remark upon because I think it, we take it for granted. The ASC community is the most optimistic community yeah, in true. the healthcare space. Isn't that true? It is. It, you know, if you spend times in, in other settings, there is so much negativity yeah. and so much you know focusing on what's going wrong. The ASC setting, you know, from the you know, physician leaders to the administrators to the clinical staff to everyone, they just have a more optimistic view right. of, of where things are heading. I mean, obviously, we have plenty of challenges, plenty, plenty of problems to overcome. Yeah. So I'm not trying to, you know, just blue sky this. But overall, I think because we figured out a better way to provide health care and to make patients not only get the health care they need, but do it in a safe way mm-hmm. and in a patient-friendly way, that just leads to a like a more optimistic view of, of, of where things are. And so I just kudos to, to everyone listening out there in the ASC community because you've made this the best place to, to, to work in the healthcare you know, uh, sphere. And lastly, I, I promise this is last, the uh, importance of becoming a member of ASCA and, of course, becoming a member of CASA. Here we are at the CASA conference. And the importance of being members of both. Yeah, I, look, there are personal benefits to it because then, you know, as we've been talking about, you you get to interact with other people yeah. that are experiencing the same problems and challenges you are. Um, so it's going to allow you to do a better job in your in your work and, and obviously just access better information. The, the ability to get the education and training, uh, right. to, to stay at the top of your field that you can only get at, at an ASE conference, whether it's a state conference like CASA or, or any of the ASCA meetings or any yeah. of our online virtual uh, offerings. And then thirdly, um, the, the support you get financially by, you know, paying your registration fee for, for a conference and being a member, your membership dues are the only way that we can, you know, support advocate. the ASC community that we can afford to, to you know hire people to advocate for ASCs in Washington or in state capitals to yeah. put on the education and training to be able to communicate you know what the ASC model is doing to uh, to the, the larger world whether it's the healthcare media or policymakers or payers mm-hmm. um, so so every dollar that you you give to ASCO or your state association is being turned around to support the healthcare model that you're working in to make your life easier 
and to make sure that your patients get the care they need. Absolutely. As always, Bill, thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do for the industry. Obviously, we've uh, we've got a great story. That's why I think we're so optimistic. We have a great story post-pandemic. Well, well, thank you, John. You have been a tremendous advocate um, in the ASC community. The education you provide on particularly on financial issues is just yeah. you know been been outstanding. You've been a great friend to Aska and to me, and I I thank you for this opportunity to spend a few minutes with you and your listeners. Always. Thank you so much. All right. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and any upcoming speaking arrangements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. So uh, the next event that's uh, coming up is the 2022 Northeast ASC Conference presented by the Massachusetts Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers. And that's going to be on October 21st, 2022 at the Massachusetts Medical Society Conference Center in Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, Lori Rodericks and I will both be speaking at that conference. I've been there before. I always enjoy the, mm-hmm. the time with, uh, and it's a one-day conference. It's pretty easy to, to get to and uh, really encourage you to go to the Massachusetts ASC Association website to sign up today and the ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp for Nursing Leaders in the Ambulatory Surgery Setting. Like all of our industry-leading boot camps, the Director of Nursing Boot Camp includes reading materials, virtual mentoring consultations, and an intensive four-day virtual conference to be presented October 25th through the 28th, 2022. And then I'm going to be going on to the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's 2022 Annual Education Conference and Trade Show, which will be held November 2nd and 3rd, 2022, at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. I just like saying Tulalip. I, do I hope I'm pronouncing it properly. <laughs> uh, and I'll be doing a session there and, and also hopefully recording a special episode. And the ASC Administrators Boot Camp for Administrators and ASCs and those that are looking to become CASC certified. The next boot camp will be on January 24th to the 27th, 2023. It took me a minute. I said 2023. <laughs> no, it's coming already. right up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And uh, ASCA 2023 Winter Seminar is January 12th through 14th. And that's going to be at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, uh, Nevada. And I will be there. Uh, I can't remember what I'm talking about. I think it's finance this time. Uh, and uh, we always have a lot of fun in Las Vegas. And, and uh, I know everybody says that people go to Las Vegas and don't attend the conferences. That does not happen with ASC people. It's always uh, being very uh, well attended. Probably have a lot of fun after and before and yeah. <laughs> surrounding yeah, it's it. It's always any of <laughs> Little the, extracurriculars. Yeah, any of the ASCA events are great. And mm-hmm. it's always great getting to see our friends again there. So, yeah. uh, uh, so uh, you know, obviously, if you're uh, there uh, – uh, look us up and, uh, you know, grab us. Uh, sometimes we grab people at, uh, that listen to our podcast and just ask them a couple quick questions for the, 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 uh, the podcast. So uh, we'd love to do that with you, too, if you're interested. Also, don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on ASCPodcast.com. We have the Credentialing Conference, the Conditions for Coverage Conference, the Medical Director Conference. We have the Director of Nursing and an Administrator's Boot Camp both um, self-paced versions that you can access there. Yeah, so if you don't have the time to uh, to actually do mm-hmm. the virtual conference, you can do the self-paced version. It's yeah. not as popular, obviously, as the uh, the live versions. Yeah. And, and you, you get a lot of the out. same benefits, you know. Uh, well, you get all mm-hmm. the same benefits of yep. of it. But what's nice is with the, uh, um, the live version, you don't actually have to attend it. You just get recordings of it later. But please do attend it because it is mm-hmm. so much more fun. Yeah, and then you can throw out questions that, that, yeah, that are well, pertinent to you. 
And I do want to remind everybody to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And the various resources that are included in our virtual conferences, links uh, to you know various uh, uh, important uh, websites, uh, example policies and procedures and forms, example drills, and discounts and services and books and access to the AEU credits. And probably the most important thing is that weekly drop-in session that we keep talking about mm-hmm. where we uh, we uh, sit down every Saturday morning, it is right now at 10 o'clock Eastern uh, Daylight Time, and just talk about whatever is important to the people that are are, are, uh, are joining us. And we, we have a good 10, 12, 15 people uh, almost every single uh, weekend. And uh, the, the number has been growing, hasn't it, Sue, uh, recently as uh, mm-hmm. more and more people have uh, discovered this, uh, this thing. So... And membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, our travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs, which, just like with everything else going on in, uh, in, uh, in the economy right now, keep going up. So for more information, you can visit ASCPodcast.com. And that's it for this, ep- and that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by the team over at Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, including Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Ann Geyer, Kathy Foti, and Donna Macchio. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.